and glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to everyone listening across the globe via HughHewitt.com or via Town Hall TV. If you're watching at TownHallTV.com, you can also watch the cameras in the studio at HughHewitt.com. It is the last radio hour of the week, the 15th hour of radio that I'm doing this week, hosting, and it's always the Hillsdale Dialogue. It's when I go big picture with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. All their online courses, you can subscribe for free to Imprimus. You can get all of the Hillsdale dialogues that I've conducted with Larry Arn from 2013 to the president or Matt Spaulding or any of their great faculty. They're all collected at hugh4hillsdale.com for binge listening. But I know what I want to get done today, and I want to get it done for the benefit of the country. Dr. Arn, how are you this morning? Very well. How are you? I'm good, but I am challenged by a week in which the rhetoric in America fell off the edge. We had terrible massacres in El Paso and Dayton. In our old, friendly Orange County confines, a man went on a rampage and stabbed four people to death. It's been a crazy week. And the response of the political left is, by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kristen Gillibrand, Beto O'Rourke, and Pete Buttigieg, to call the President of the United States a white supremacist. What do you make of that? Well, um, in uh, so I've been reading the rhetoric of the Civil War this morning, <laughs> you know, the, and I mean the lead up to it during the war too, and uh, you don't find anything like that from the, you know the the leading people. You don't Lincoln Lincoln there. Lincoln was very tough, and when he was a young man, he was sued for slander and libel several times, and he was once challenged to a duel that he almost fought, but he's matured and he didn't do that after that so if you read the lincoln douglas debates which we have read on this show they're very tough you know and they're brilliant right but they're not personally vindictive that, that's um, it that's it and and uh and so now you do get that i mean uh i forget the name of the man who did it but charles sumner massachusetts senator was beaten half to death on south the carolina congressman yeah south carolina yeah, congressman pickering right and, they, yeah. and and that was a you know that was <laughs> that was a civil piece of violence because it was thought to be a matter of honor. <laughs> anyway, things like that happen, and and you know there were crazy guys. There were uh, you know people. The rhetoric was violent about secession in many of the southern states, but not not the leading people, and they were leading people in part because they matured to a place where they, you know, they sounded like people who might be leaders of a nation. But, you know, I mean, you know, Donald Trump, the idea that he's a white supremacist, that's crazy. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Th that is and, uh, crazy, unless you define white supremacy into people you don't like who happen to be white. That's what yeah. is going on. That's right. And, it, you know, it's hard to make an argument, right? Another thing about it that's bad is uh, if you listen to the Lincoln-Douglas debates, they invite you to think, right? What, what's exposed between the two of them is that this is a very hard problem, and we have to face some things. One, one thing we have to face is most of us don't, most of us voters, most of us white people, don't want a lot of black people around. And that's one reason why this is so complicated. And, and, and you know, Lincoln, Lincoln did not go so far as to say, 
I favor the social and political equality of the black. He denied that he favored that. But then, he, and, and if he hadn't denied that, he couldn't have won. Uh, they, uh, one of my teachers used to say they would hold the convention to the Republican Party in a telephone booth. But what did he say? He said, uh, I don't understand if you think that the black woman, he used her, is your inferior. Why you get to own her? Why don't you just let her alone? And doesn't, and doesn't she have the same right we have to eat the bread that she, sw- that she earns with the sweat of her own face? So, you know, that's elevated and beautiful. And D- Douglas, in my opinion, never ascends to that level. He never, he, he's, he's got lower arguments to make. But, uh, you know, I uh, sent a prominent Republican this week uh, linked to the Cooper Union speech because I said yeah. this is how people need to respond you have to make an argument. And would you tell people a little bit about what Lincoln did in that speech and why it made him a superstar overnight? Well, he, uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's, one of his, it's one of his speeches that's uh, the reaction to it is best recorded. So Lincoln wins the popular vote in the 1858 Republican statewide election for Senate. But the, and, and they gained seats in the Illinois Senate the state Senate, which is back in those days the one to pick the senators. They gained seats, but they didn't get a majority, and so the Democrats had a majority and Douglas was reelected senator. But it was a noble effort. And, and uh, Illinois, out on the frontier, was back then a swing state. And so, uh, so that made Lincoln important, right? And so, you know, the big, big wigs in the party, you know, were back in New York and Ohio, and uh, and those were settled. You know, New York was original, and and Ohio was settled much earlier than Illinois. And so, this guy out on the frontier, his name got in the papers in the East. And then he went back east, and he made a series of speeches, and they're very beautiful speeches. And there's an account of the Cooper Union Address, which is a old institution still standing in in Manhattan, in New York City, um, and. He just galvanized the people. It just, uh, uh, the, one of the descriptions goes like this, and we, we get into what Lincoln said in the argument in a minute, but he said that uh, he, he began speaking, and uh, he was just standing erect with his arms by his side, and that he didn't move about. Stood, you know, on a stage, of course, no microphone back then, and, and that he had a high voice. And at first... It sounded disappointing. And uh, then the man describes that uh, as he talked, his body began to move slightly, never to walk around or change his position, his his place on the stage, and he began to move in just a little bit. And then his hands began to come up. And they they were, you know, they didn't jest for much, but he was sort of holding both of his hands up eventually above his waist, and he would sort of move with his points, sort of bow a little bit, and his hands would bow. And by the end, his hands were up quite high, not above his head, but quite high. And he was, his points were being made like a conductor. And, and uh, uh, the newspaper man who wrote about the speech said that he, uh, he, he, the, the audience sat in astonished silence for a minute after he finished. Astonished silence? Yeah. He did, you know, it's just that Lincoln was, you know, very effective, and and uh, he had a beautiful soul, 
and he could speak what it was thinking. And so it just really moved people. There was a, you know, he's one of my favorite things. There's actually a, a, a book that I've kept open on my desk to a certain page since it was published in 1978. It's uh, called The Face of Lincoln. And uh, this was given a few days after the, this, this. So what The Face of Lincoln is is a reproduction of every photograph there is of Abraham Lincoln. It's a big, glossy picture book, coffee table book. Quite, quite large, too. And every picture is reproduced and painfully restored, so the pictures are really striking and large. And then on the opposite page, there's something Lincoln said or did at the time. And so you can page through it, and, you know, one thing, you can watch the war grow on Abraham Lincoln's face as you right. page through it. Uh, but this particular thing is a few days after the Cooper Union Address, and he's in Hartford, Connecticut, and the next book morning gets on a stra- on a train and a, a, a preacher slash journalist uh says are you riding on this train mr lincoln he says i am and he said may i ride with you and lincoln said sure and he asked him a question and the question was effectively how did you write that speech now i'll tell you what he said in the speech see the republican party was formed around an attempt to fight slavery by constitutional means the Constitution doesn't give, didn't give the federal government power to interfere with slavery in the states where it existed. And so... One minute to the break. Go ahead, just. So, so the plan was to uh, forbid it from growing into the federal territories. And that would place it in the course of ultimate extinction, and that would preserve both the Constitution and the Declaration. Well, I'll, I'll tell what Lincoln said about this, but the, the, the puzzle or the confrontation he has about that is... If slavery is bad in the territories, why not abolish it in the states? And if slavery is okay in the states, why not let it go into the territories? You are inconsistent, old Republicans. So he grabs the nut. I mean, he goes to the heart of the argument, right? That's right. When we come back, we'll talk about how Lincoln did that. It is a lesson for these times, both on how to argue and how not to argue. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Rhetoric in incendiary times is the conversation we are having. Don't miss any of it here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. When we went to break, Dr. Arn, we're talking about rhetoric in incendiary times had begun to set up the Cooper Union speech by Lincoln by outlining the dilemma the Republicans faced, which was a charge of hypocrisy. If slavery was wrong in the territories, why wasn't it wrong in the states? And if it was uh, okay in the states, why wouldn't it be okay in the territory? So how did that Rubik's Cube get unwound by Lincoln? So I'm going to describe quickly two different speeches given six days apart. Uh, I need them both because it's uh, in response to the Hartford speech six days later that Lincoln explained how he learned to think. Uh, so in the in the Cooper Union address, he just asked the question, it's just like a really great teacher in a classroom, how do we know what the people who wrote the Constitution and signed it thought about slavery? And he, he proceeds by... Uh, taking the evidence together, there are 39 of them. And then he cites, it's very orderly, and it's, and it's one of those Lincoln arguments that builds to an ineluctable conclusion. And what he says is, 
a lot of them later supported anti-slavery resolutions, and a lot of them advocated the end of slavery. And what he gets to is that nearly all of them, North and South, were vocal opponents of slavery for most of their life. And so if the question is, what were the people thinking when they wrote the Constitution, then we know the answer to that. And that's, it's just a proof, right? Yes. And remember, when, when you do that, right, when you come and make an argument based on evidence and reason, then you're inviting people to answer you and discuss with you. And when you call somebody a white supremacist, then you're condemning him and writing him out of the political system. And so Lincoln, Lincoln doesn't do that, right? He's, these, uh, the, the, the Confederate states and their governments seceded from the Union of the United States. He walked softly, spoke softly when he was talking about them. He wanted to invite them back, right? In the, in the Hartford speech, that's where he answers one about this paradox, this uh, seeming contradiction that he wants to stop slavery completely in the in the federal territories, which, remember, listeners, was most of the Union right, back then, right. bigger than the states. And leave it alone in the states. And so in the Cooper Union, he says, uh, in the Hartford speech, he says, if I see a rattlesnake, it depend, what I do depends on where it is. If it's out in the garden, I'll get a stick and kill it for fear that it will bite my children. But what if, it, uh, what if it's in the bed with my children? I might not stir it up. Because if I stir it up, then uh, it might bite the children, whereas it might just lie there or even crawl away. And so this preacher journalist thought that this was brilliant and said, how'd you write it? And here's what, here's what Lincoln said. This is how, by the way, you prepare yourself not to just be a name-caller. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren is a highly uh, educated woman. I don't think she's been studying the right stuff in the right spirit. Lincoln says, well, I was reading law, he says, and uh, I kept running across the word demonstrate. Every time that word appears in this article, this newspaper article, this preacher journalist wrote about it, it's, it's italicized. Lincoln apparently said it with emphasis, demonstrate. And I began to think that was an extraordinary kind of proof. And so I read my Blackstone, and I kept reading law, and I finally looked up and said, Lincoln, you'll never make a lawyer if you don't learn how to do that. And so I left my position in Springfield and went home to my father's house, and I did not return to work until I could repeat from memory all of the propositions of Euclid in his six volumes. Wow. See, he went to learn. The reason I keep it on my desk is I, I, I read it to young people. And, you know, like my Federalist Society chapter last year, they wanted to start a journal. They're really great kids. You know, I had several of them in class at the time. And they wanted to start a journal, and they wanted a speaker series. And I said, they, they, I didn't like it. And so they found out, and they came to my office. We understand you're concerned. And I said, not concerned at all. And they said, why not? And I said, well, you're not going to do that. <laughs> 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 and I'll tell you why not. <laughs> After. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry R. And all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Not this conversation, but I wish he recorded it. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.
Welcome back, America. To you the last radio hour of the week means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale from Hillsdale College, the Lantern of the North, is at hillsdale.edu. All of these conversations dating back to 2013, the last radio hour of the week, there are hundreds of them now, are collected at you for hillsdale.com. This week we are talking about rhetoric in incendiary times. And we left off with the Federalist Society um, approaching Dr. Arn with a, a list of wants, needs, and desires, and you spurned them. Well, uh, Abigail, I won't say her last name, the president at that time, she just graduated, uh, she said, why not? And I said, well, Abigail, in 10 minutes, you're not going to want to. And I read them that speech. <laughs> and I read Lincoln, that from Lincoln. that newspaper article about Lincoln. And I, and I looked up, and, you know, they got it in a minute, you know, and they're backs were stiffening up, you know, they were straightening up and getting their chins up while I was reading, you know, because it's very beautiful, this thing. And I said, uh, you wouldn't want to leave the impression that you people are insufficiently ambitious, would you? (laughs) (laughs) And so they went away and they didn't get their, they didn't get their program. And see, that's the point, right? I mean, we got a bunch of kids agitating for the Convention of the States, they call it, which I think is a misnomer. And I'm happy to debate that. I don't like the agitation. I'm going to tone it down, right? Because they're here to study and learn. And making these hard commitments when you're 19 years old and you can't properly define the word politics yet or, you know, the word good or anything, you're supposed to be learning to do that, just like Lincoln did, see? And think what a, what a, what a, Reverence and humility it is to take the trouble to get it right. And the people who really do that, Lincoln and Churchill, for example, they have the ability to skate. Do you know, I have, I have to tell you, in contrast, Lincoln's approach. I have seen a documentary this week called Remember My Name about the musician David Crosby, who, mm. uh, one of the great musicians of the 60s and 70s, and also an addict many times close to death. His, his life is a wreck. He has no friends left. He's 76 years old, and he's going to die. And he's talking to Cameron Crowe about this life and how the music mattered. You know, music is different from argument. Music is all emotion. And it's beautiful, but it is, it is a generation steeped in emotion and music, not really brought up on argument, Larry. So I'm not really surprised that outside of, of Hillsdale graduates and a few other places that we find many people trying to make an argument about why we have mass slaughters in El Paso and Dayton and what to do about it, but instead reverting to incendiary rhetoric. That's, that's what happens when you lose the ability to argue. Yeah. Well, the classic teaching about about music, it's, you know, first of all, it's, you know, one of the two modes of education in Plato's Republic, music and gymnastic, training the soul and training the body. And music means both literally music, but also other things you read and learn and hope and one hopes memorize that shape your soul. And good music in Plato's Republic and in Aristotle's Poetics Good music is orderly. And the, the reason, you know, the reason you love Mozart is that it's a, it's a wonderful thing. He, you know, if you just listen carefully. Some works are very complex, and mere cretins like you and me, Hugh, can't delve into the depths of it. But, uh, but when you listen to music, if it's good music, then, then 
uh, it, you anticipate what's coming next. It's like reading a book. And it teaches you the order of things. And, of course, that kind of music can raise the most profound emotion, but it is ordered. It, uh, I, I went to a lecture one time, and this uh, music professor and a physicist from Stanford, if I remember right, were talking about music. And there were like 400 people at this thing. And he said, they said, how many of, them, how many of you can read music? And a few hands went up. And he said, you're wrong, you all can. And then he started playing recordings of music. He said, hold up your hand when the note doesn't fit. And you could hear it every time. Every, you know, if you listen to Schoenberg or something modern, you might not be able to tell, but, but every hand goes up. And he said, see, that's why you like music. Hmm. You can anticipate the pattern of it. And then when it surprises you, that introduces a new order. Well, if you, you know, all this stuff that's going on in our country, we're just not doing a very good job with our young people. Oh boy, and, are uh, we not. Now, I, I, I want to make sure we don't run out of time because incendiary rhetoric, you are also a scholar not only of the framing and of Lincoln, but of Churchill. And Churchill was a rhetorician, and on two occasions, in the 30s, he had to often confront genuine white supremacy, right? He had to deal with the real deal. How did he do so while maintaining the attention of the House, or did he give up on maintaining the attention of the House in order to make his points? Uh, well, remember, Hugh, that Hitler, you and I wouldn't be in it, right? Because we're not Aryans. But, uh, oh, no, we, we, we would not. I'm Irish, so <laughs> we, we don't count. Yeah. yeah, it might be Jewish blood. Anyway, yeah, Churchill, and, and since I've made that point about music, you know, really great political speeches, including the really hard ones, have that order in them that leads somewhere. That's one of the main points of Aristotle's rhetoric. He, he regards the purpose of rhetoric as persuasion, he says, and you get lost in that because that's the first thing. But then you find out later that he says that it is a truth-disclosing uh, capacity of public speech. So uh, here's you know the strongest thing Churchill said about the Labor Party, and he said it in the 1945 election where they wiped the floor with him. And before I read it to you, I will tell you that Clement Attlee and Churchill and Attlee were friends, and he, he respected each other for good reason. Atlee was a war hero, uh, had said the same thing about Churchill earlier, but nobody made us think about that. Right? The press then was kind of like the press now. Here's what he said. No socialist government conducting the entire life and industry of the country could afford to allow free, sharp, or violently worded expressions of public discontent. They would have to fall back on some form of Gestapo, Think of saying that in 1945. When we know, when when it's real, when it's across the the channel. No doubt very humanely directed in the first instance. You see? In other words, he's not accusing them of being Nazis. They're adopting arguments that lead that way. And, And that places the focus on the arguments and invites people to think about them. It would, he goes on to say, stop criticism as it reared its head and it would gather all the power of the Supreme Party and the party leaders. And where would be the simple, ordinary folk, the common people, as they like to call them in America? Where would they be once this mighty organism had got them in its grip? So, see, that's a, that's a strong thing to say. 
they would they would have to fall back. He doesn't say they want a Gestapo. He actually says they do not want it. He, he, he doesn't say they are Nazis. He says they're not Nazis. He says that what they're advocating will lead that away. And that's and see that that's something different than a con, condemnation. That's an appeal to reason with me about this. Don't go that way. What was the or reaction to the speech, though? What was the reaction to the famed Gestapo speech? Well, he uh, it, it's a little mixed, but, you know, the uh, it's referred to as the crazy speech now by historians. And uh, he it and, you know, he lost the election big time. Was that the reason he lost it? Well, I don't think so. For one reason, because Churchill was immensely popular all through the war and during the election, he got his largest majority he ever got in the 1945 election in his personal constituency. So he was, you know, the greatest man in the world. But, you know, you don't vote for the prime minister unless you happen to live in in Woodford, which was his constituency, one of 650. You vote for your MP of one party or the other. And, you know, the Conservative Party had been in charge for a long time, since 1935. And they led, led the country into and through that war that was crippling. And they were responsible for it. And also... Because it, they had not stopped it from occurring, uh, despite Churchill's warnings that it was coming. That's right. That's right. And they, they had the power. Now, you, you wouldn't fairly picked the Labor Party over the Conservative Party at that time, because the Labor Party was at least as bad. But never mind, they, they were responsible, right? And then the war itself, you have to understand the, the, the amazing reach of that war. Because Britain, they, they, were, they were borrowing money by the end of the war to be able to buy enough food to feed their people. And they had rationing a year until a year after Germany got rid of it. And they just mortgaged their whole future. And Victor Hansen writes in his book a really wonderful passage about how effective the British war effort was, how they got the last ounce out of themselves. And so that winning by Churchill, I, I don't think it's the reason he lost the election, but it certainly didn't win it for him. When we, and when I we, think those other facts were bigger. When we come back, we're going to talk about the incendiary rhetoric of this week and going forward and whether or not they are of more Cooper Union or the crazy speech or something entirely different, which is an abandonment of argument. That's what I think we'll hear what Dr. Larry Arndt thinks after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale or at Hillsdale EDU. Over at HughHewitt.com, there is a banner. Dr. Arndt and I are agreed that the government of Venezuela is a police state, an authoritarian, totalitarian, evil state. We are agreed that the Cubans who are executing Maduro's people, 7,000 extrajudicial killings, are genuinely Gestapo. They are the real deal. And as a result, millions of people have fled. Hundreds of thousands of them are in Colombia, and they are starving. And Food for the Poor has gone down there to feed them. And I am helping Food for the Poor feed them. And the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I dug deep at the beginning of this week, and I'm asking you to do the same thing 
uh, and to make a donation for food for the poor right now as the weekend begins at the crisis in Latin America. It will go right down to Venezuela, to Colombia, not to Venezuela. The aid cannot get into Venezuela. These people do not want to come to America. These people are displaced from Venezuela. They want to go back to Venezuela, but in the meantime, they are starving. And if you want to help them, call 855-359-4673. That's 855-359-HOPE. John Bolton is on the front line here. President Trump is on the front line here. And you can be on the front line here. You can help these people. $100 provides 2,500 meals. The banner is Crisis in Latin America. It's at the top of HughHewitt.com. Please be generous. The need is urgent. Maduro is such a criminal. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue as we continue the conversation about it. We've gone over the edge rhetorically in the United States. I think we did this week. I don't know if we can get back up over the cliff. I'll ask Dr. Arn after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is wrapping up for this week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. We do this every week in the last radio hour. All things Hillsdale. Their online courses are amazing. The Imprimus newsletter is free. You just have to go to hillsdale.edu. When Dr. Arn comes to a city or town near you and you hear about it, go hear him give the talk about the framing and education in civic America. So, Dr. Arn, now we've talked about incendiary rhetoric. I'd, I'd like to ask what your advice to President Trump would be about responding to rhetorical excess, accusing him of white supremacy. As you said, basically reading him and those who support him out of politics, because you and I agree that white supremacists are evil and ought not to be encouraged or tolerated. That's right. And uh, yeah, so first of all, uh, I think Trump's uh, rhetoric is is uh, generally pretty good and getting better and sometimes great. So I look through the things he said in the wake of all this, and uh, you know he's learning while he goes. He, he didn't, in my opinion, give a bad message about Charlottesville a couple of years ago. He he he, he didn't get it quite right the first time. And so he's he's getting it right now. And there's an opening. Uh, I think his message needs to swell. And uh, we've seen the tough, I can take anybody on Trump. That's how he got, that's how he won the primary. Uh, but now, and we see more of, and we need to see a lot more of in the next election, the man whose rhetoric rises to the sublime. And that's very hard to do, of course. And uh, I happen to know some of the people who help him with that, and they're not far off being able to do it. And he's very good himself. But you want to, because isn't isn't the opportunity ripe for somebody to make a powerful argument that comprehends all of this and shows a way out of it that can bring us all together? Yeah, in and fact, that's what Lincoln was that, able to do. That's what I did in the Washington Post. It will appear today. I said, we, each week, 10 pundits ranked the Democrats. And I said, they all missed this week. There was an opening as large as possible to rise above, step up, and instead they all stepped into it. And they did not do what Bobby Kennedy did on the night of the assassination of Martin Luther King, which is to, to appeal to reason and unity in a high, uh, in a beautiful way, quoting Aeschylus uh, about the grace of sorrow. And none of them did that. Not one of them reached for unity, Larry Arndt. 
Yeah, isn't that funny? And they, and you know, as I say, I think there's an opportunity there, right? It, uh, and it's irresponsible, I think. And I, I don't accuse either party of this alone. I think that the primary system uh, drives uh, uh, candidates to to the extremes. Um, they, they, you know, it's irresponsible to take positions now that will get you the, the, the vast majority of the radicals who dominate Democratic primaries, at least in the funding and in the activism, and, and not think about, you know, all of America. Our, our, our much-admired Kim Strassel this morning writes an article about what they're saying about gun control, and they're just vying with each other to say who can confiscate the most guns. And, you know, 48% of the men in America are gun owners, and and uh, vast majorities of them say they can't do without it. And very large numbers of women, I can't remember from her articles in the article this morning, also own them. And so, those, you know, I'm going to come take your thing, right? And that's uh, that's not, you know, that's not good. And um, it it doesn't lead us back toward figuring all this out. No, it doesn't. And that is. I don't think it's a matter of despair. I think it will burn out. I, I don't think we reward that politically. And if we do, we're in a bad place. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it, it, there are forces in America, left and right, I think mostly left, but I'm not sure. And they, you know, they are extreme. And uh, they, they, they do seem to have more exercise more authority now, at least in one party. Well, the uh, mob showing up on Mitch McConnell's lawn with a voodoo doll and calling for his death, this is not normal in American politics. And it is not being condemned widely or rapidly. Last minute to you. I think that is a bad sign. Yeah, well, you know, there's nothing more urgent right now than to study the best examples of the past and try to emulate them because they are there. And uh, they, too, did not, the best of them, did not in- invent what they did. They studied and learned. They, they got their Euclid. study your Euclid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to go off and do that, but I'm, I'm impressed by the example. I'll do the best I can. I'm listening to uh, Andrew Roberts' book on Napoleon. That's pretty doggone good, that's, but that's not Euclid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Larry Arn, always a pleasure. This Hillsdale Dialogue and all of them will be collected and put up at HughForHillsdale.com, also available at Hillsdale.edu. Go over and get Imprimus. Get yourself to the library. Get yourself to the higher thing. Get yourself away from the television and have a great weekend. I'll be back. You'll see me on Meet the Press on Sunday. I'll be back right here on Monday morning on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.